water supply for Texas fund with a mission to create 7 million acre feet of water in Texas over the next 10 years. Texas could be short between 5 million and 7 million acre feet of water by the year 2070. Support this local newscast and this station now by going to kpft.org and becoming a member. Thanks for tuning in. For KPFT News, I'm Elise Bench. Houston is the single most ethnically diverse region within the United States. Celebrate at iFest USA, the city's and nation's official celebration of multiculturalism and diversity, held Saturday, May 20th from 2 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Discovery Green in downtown Houston. Enjoy live entertainment, international cuisine, and cultural booths at iFest USA. Admission is free. Get your free pass today at the internationalfest.org. Hi, I'm Matt Harlan, and you're listening to KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM. Welcome to Growing Up in America here in KPFT, Pacifica Radio. It's uh, Claire, Claire Dutre, Bob Sanborn. Claire, how are you doing today? I am doing good. It is good weather. No more rain for now. For so now, I'm right, good. for now. So uh, Claire's in the studio with me and uh, another hour of uh, Growing Up in America here on KPFT. This is a discussion on our children, public policy, and how do we as a city and a community do when it comes to taking care of all of our kids. Claire, we got a roaring good show today, right? We do. We have a lot very of great Very female guests. strong, actually. Yeah, 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 I guess so, half and half. Uh, but it's very good. We have uh, Linda Corchado is going to start us off today. We're talking about Title 42. She's down on the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's the head of the Children's Immigration Network at Children at Risk, so we'll be talking with her. Megan Green is uh, with us today. She's the Director of Prevention, Early Intervention at DePelchin. Uh, we've had her before. We love Megan, so she'll awesome. be on. Uh, Dr. Daphne, Daphne Hernandez, who's a UT Health. Uh, we're looking forward to talking with her again. Uh, Raul Zavaleta, Health Services over at the Harris County Department of Education. And then we'll wrap it up with Dr. Ricky Flores, who is uh, one of the clinical directors at Texas Children's Hospital. And uh, we're looking forward to having uh, Dr. Ricky on the we a couple doctors, Dr. Daphne, know, Dr. Ricky, be... Dr. Bob. Very, I know, Dr. Claire. Yeah, no, I'm just gonna... It's all very good. So, uh, and then do we have a, 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 we don't have data for the day, do we today? We do. And the number is. Oh, we do. I'm going to help you. 30. 30. 30. What is that all about? 30. What are you guessing? This is uh, Claire's birthday in about five years. Uh, <laughs> I know. Um, 30% of, well, that's a low number. Yeah, I don't know what it I don't is. Know. Well, I was we'll going to say see. children are happy, but I hope that's yeah, a high number. 30 is the ideal age. I think that that's what we're going to say. It is. So. 30s are the best, I think. Uh, you don't know, though. You're still in your 20s. Though, I've Claire. just heard a lot. <laughs> I've heard a lot about You know what I want to hear on the air pretty soon is I want to get uh, Becky Quintanilla back. Oh, those uh, are my, the, my favorite segments. I love the slang. Teen right? talk. Teen talk, right. Exactly. Or Gen Z. Yeah, Gen Z talk. So let's go. Uh, do we have uh, Linda Linda on the line? I let's think let's we go do. ahead and uh, get Linda going on. And by the way, this is uh, Pledge Week. And so oh. we want to emphasize this is this is uh, we want people to call in, uh, do your pledges. And the number is 713-526-5738. Press number one. And uh, for your donations, 713-526-5738. We had a great, uh, last week we had a lot of donations and we look forward to this week. This is so important, right? The show Growing Up in America is unlike any other program in the United Ever. States because we do we do focus on children and family policy, and we do it in a fun way because we have Claire with us. It mm-hmm. makes it all so 
uh, engaging. Uh, but we have experts from all over the country who talk about some of the great things happening and some of the not so great things happening and the needs that we have for children and families. We do that on Growing Up in America, and we need your support here and on KPFT. What a great community radio station, 713-526-5738. Press number one for donations. If you want to call in, it's number two, uh, but 713-526-5738. And uh, all sorts of things, right, that you could – when I guess Claire, if you call in, you get these uh, tickets to so. all these all these places. There's some events. There's some T-shirts. I have a pretty rad coffee mug from KPFT. And, and the bricks, you know, they're doing these bricks. Oh the yes, yes, yes. So Weaver Mark in Houston. So I think for a monthly donation, uh, you're able to put a brick out in front of KPFT. Um, so uh, there's just a lot of good things. I see the Tauntauns are one of the things that you could win. Uh, one of the, there's so many concerts, right? Mm-hmm. So Sue Foley, Sonny Landreth. Uncle Lucius, right? Who doesn't like Uncle Lucius? I don't know who Uncle Lucius is, actually. <laughs> but I know that he's probably pretty good. So, uh, Rico, do you know some of these guests, these people that know? You don't. Uh, I know that Becky does, though. So, I know. Well, yeah. we'll know them before they get big. So, 713-526-5738. Hey, let's go uh, to our first guest. And uh, Linda Corchado is on the line. <laughs> All right, Linda Corchado is on the line with us. She is the director of the Children's Immigration Network. Uh, She's out in El Paso, right on the border. And uh, Linda, tell us what's going on on the border uh, with Title 42. And and assume little knowledge, right, on our part. Uh, You know, what was it like and what was Title 42 and what does it mean that it's lifted, Linda? Mm, Right. Title 42 was put in place in March of 2020, um, shortly after shutdowns all across the country and the world. Um, And many believe that this was all done under false pretenses. The idea was we need to seal the border um, to protect ourselves against more COVID outbreaks so we won't be processing asylum seekers, Mm. in particular persons who are fleeing persecution. Um, This had a devastating impact on many asylum seekers, and it was also devastating for border communities because it also stopped our fluid relationship with families across the border. The border was essentially sealed, um, and this meant that many families were immediately expelled, sent back to Mexico, in situations where they may have already suffered kidnappings, attempted murder. Um, it was really gruesome um, to, to do this kind of work, especially on the border during that time. So, so most immigration advocates, the people that are working with communities uh, that are coming across, uh, kids and families, uh, they're supportive of this idea that we don't have Title 42 anymore. But but a lot of changes happened as part of lifting Title 42, you know, this phone app, and then the numbers are down. Talk a little bit about what it feels like to be on the ground there, Linda. Right. Well, we are happy that Title 42 has come to an end, but many advocates fear that this is a new asylum ban now that um, the Secretary of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, has imposed, which means that now any person... Um, who tries to seek asylum in the United States, if they did not first attempt to set up an appointment to meet with Border Patrol agents at a port of entry through a CBP-1 app, they didn't do that. That means that they have no right anymore to asylum and will be deported. Um, so it's it's been very challenging to navigate through all of these processes. Um, especially for asylum seekers who don't have the ability to get on these phones, may not have a phone, they may have had their phone just stolen. Um, And there's also serious linguistic barriers that prevent them from doing the same. And it's also a bit silly, right? It's like you can, essentially, it, it means that the government is thinking you can seek asylum, you're safe to live in Mexico, but if you fill out the application on the app, it may be not so safe and you can actually seek asylum here in the, in the U.S. So mm. it, it sounds a bit trivial for people who actually do this kind of work and know the dangers 
of of Mexico and beyond. Yeah, I was seeing that the number of migrant encounters have dropped by half since Title 42 ended just on the Texas border alone. Um, But like you said, just the complications still of the app or the phone and how might this still have an impact on immigration and how this is just one step. Right. I mean, I know that a lot of people just want to do this the right way. They want to wait. And if, if that's what they need to do, they'll go through the CBP one app to do it. Um, But there's, also the, the idea that persons who are fleeing persecution don't have the luxury of time um, and may have left everything behind and, and can't wait in line. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, you know, one perspective, which is the CBP app, one app that plays into it. The other is the Title 42 also encouraged a lot of persons who may be economic migrants to give it a shot because mm. there were no criminal perse- prosecutions as well. Um, they would just be expelled, and if they tried again the next day, they, they could give it a go again. And so now, you know, the message is that we're back to normal, back to before 2020, which means that if, if you are just an economic migrant, um, you will likely be deported. So I think that has another impact. And finally, fear-mongering. You know, right. this is what we know so well at the border. Um, there was just so much fear-mongering about restoring our immigration laws, reopening the border, um, this sense of lack, right, that the United States just does not have enough to welcome another person. And when you see the reality and you see the data that the person's actually attempting to come are, are down, it, it's, it's not some chaos at the border the way many thought. It just goes to show that, that there's always some level of disconnect about what's actually going on at the border and the reality. And, and fi- final question here, Linda, in El Paso, I mean, what is there? What, I, I know for a while you guys had, you know, um, these uh, immigrants, migrants all over the place, you know, that are coming into town. Is it still, do you still see this? And are, are most of them sort of getting on buses and heading out to their family members that they have across the country? Or what, what does it look like? We're seeing, I, I'm not seeing um, a lot of persons in downtown, for example, the way they were before. Um, and actually, a lot of CBP agents were telling folks, hey, if you're here and you're on the streets and you haven't come to us yet, you need to do that to, to be properly in place for asylum, to seek asylum. And there were lines of people waiting to present to CBP agents. Um, again, this counters the narrative that, that people are just coming in trying to evade our laws. <laughs> yeah, I, um, and it's very and, different, right? I mean, that's it. You're right. It is counter that against that narrative because if you if you listen to Fox News, it sounds like there's just no border controls at all. The, the fence is not built, and people are just walking across, and we're good with that. But it, it's very different than that. Exactly, and it just shows the partnership, right? When when immigrants know this is the process, this is what you do, they want to be a part of that process. They want to respect the laws, you know, especially someone who represented asylum seekers. Yeah, I I know what institution institutional failures look like, yeah. and so many people who come here revere our institutions and want to be a part of it to make our country stronger. Um, so we're it's back to normal here in El Paso. Um, now that 42 has been lifted, the border's open, and it feels like normalcy. Yeah. Linda Corchado is the director of the Children's Immigration Network at Children at Risk. Uh, she's out in El Paso. Linda, thanks so much for the work you do. And can we have you on, like, in a couple of weeks, Linda, and sort of get an update on what's going on with this? I would love to. I know you would. Thank you, Dr. Bob. Thank you, Linda. All right. Talk to you soon, Linda. Take care. Take care. Very good. Let's go to our buddy uh, Megan Green is on the line with us, and Megan is with. She's the director of the prevention and early intervention at uh, Depelchin Children's Center uh, here in Houston. Megan, how are you doing today? 
Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, well, we love having you here, Megan. So uh, today we're talking a little bit about sleep and kids. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yes, definitely. So a couple of things. Every parent will admit that sleep may or may not be their worst nightmare. And having children, it can be um, kind of a love-hate relationship. But most importantly, we want our infants to to sleep safely. And so um, just some quick data, the Harris County Child Fatality Review Team put out a decade review of rates from 2008 to 2017, and you can find this online. Um, And unfortunately, sleep-related deaths were the leading cause of death in infants. And Mm. this is across white, black, and Hispanic children. So um, this is something that's across the board, and a lot of it is very preventable. And so when we talk to families, we really encourage, and this is all information given out by the American Academy of Pediatrics, that safe sleep means a baby is on their back, alone in their crib, or an approved bassinet, and no blankets or soft toys are present with the baby. Um, And, you know, the other thing is babies sometimes need to sleep in the parents' room. We know that, right? It's easy access in the middle of the night. And there's a lot of safety um, concerns there. So it's okay to share a room with the baby, but not the bed. So, um, you know, we want babies to sleep alone in their crib. Um, And there's really some benefits to that. Um, Babies who actually sleep on their back are less likely to get fevers, stuffy noses, ear infections. Um, So just by following some of this, um, babies can sleep safer. Parents can hopefully get some rest at night. And um, we also recognize that routines are important. So we want our parents to really focus on starting that sleep routine as early as possible. And what that means is helping babies recognize the difference between day and night because they like to get that confused. Mm. So, uh, you know, we encourage let your days look the same, you know, start to establish those uh, eating routines, you know, that babies kind of getting on a track with when they eat that babies know, you know, we take a nap at this time, we tend to take a walk at this time, making sure that the days look very similar each day so that they can start to expect what bedtime routine looks like. Kid, you, you know, know kid, be, kids love routine yeah. and it starts with babies, right? I yeah. mean, it's it's uh it's yeah. such an emotional it's such a it's it's a mental health issue for kids in many ways, right? That you like this they like this routine and it's a, it's a big deal for them and you start early. Very much so. And actually, a new buzzword is infant mental health and the importance of babies having sleep. And really, there's a lot of new research that shows the importance of that early, early on. And um, as parents, we can encourage that just by making some different modifications to our schedules each day. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Megan, about uh, co-sleeping, right? Because in many cultures, the idea of the baby sort of laying with mom and dad or with mom, um, you know, maybe mom is breastfeeding and that's part of the deal. But it's uh, the the co-sleeping is like a big deal. And there, there are groups that are advocating that more of that in the United States. How do you sort of, when you're talking to parents, Megan, and they're asking about co-sleeping, how do you, how do you discuss it with them? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, it's, we want to really validate these families because again, it's, it can seem easier. And when mom is nursing, um, there's a lot of ways that that can make sense, but We also know that it's just not the safe way. Mm. Um, But thankfully, there are safe approved cribs and bassinets that um, can, you know, reside right next to the bed that are very safe and make it seem like babies co-sleeping, but they're still in their own protected crib. And so we encourage parents to look into things like that. Um, Actually, the Texas Health and Human Services website has infant sleep uh, sleep information, and there's actually resources for families out there if they need access to these cribs, they can get that. Yeah, even, would it just be that website too? I'm not a current parent, but just the idea of a fragile child does overwhelm me and stress me out. So is there questions that parents should be asking or who necessarily can they turn to for child sleep advice or just in general in raising a newborn? Yeah, this is a good question. So first and foremost, always talk to the pediatrician first because Mm. it could depend on this baby's health, that they have certain needs, 
specific to that child. And the pediatrician should be able to give them some good resources and ideas. Um, I also like to point parents to social media. There's some really great groups out there on infant sleep and different cohorts of babies. If you, you know, have a baby between this age that you look into sleep groups, um, I would just advise that you always run that information by your pediatrician before trying anything, but it can be a great support group for parents to kind of just get some validation and um, just be heard, you know, by other parents who are going through that. It really, uh, it's very important for parents' own mental health that they take turns, that they have a support person that they can talk to when they need that. It's so funny, right, Megan, that for many parents, especially new parents and uh, parents when the baby's much younger, this is the the roughest sort of part, right? The sleep deprivation, you know, why is this baby waking up at all times? I mean, this is, some some would argue this is the roughest part of parenthood maybe up until the teenage years, right? I mean, it's it's uh, it's hard on parents, right, to deal with all this. And there are lots of different pieces of advice. And one of the things that I'll often say is that, that uh, we do see a lot of co-sleeping in cultures, but uh, when there's co-sleeping going on, parents are sort of still a little bit awake, right? Because they don't want to turn over on the baby. And so their sleep, they're, we're sort of infringing upon the parent's sleep in many ways when this is happening. And so uh, if, the, if it's at all possible, sort of this idea of having the baby in the room and, and as the baby gets just a little bit older, just in the next room, uh, sometimes uh, sort of leads to the best of sleep for both baby and parent. Yes, very true. We recommend that and um, helps them just, I mean, in, in their development in a lot of different ways. And really parent mental health is very important in taking care of children. So we want to encourage that. Megan Green is over at the Pelchin Children's Center. Megan, thanks so much. And I look forward to having you back again. Thank you so much. All righty. Take care. Uh, you're listening to Growing Up in America here on KPFT Pacifica Radio. You flip the script for the hell of it. Addicted to betrayal, but you're relevant. I love all these musical interludes. Hey, it's yeah. Pledge Pledge Week once again here on KPFT. Uh, and uh, we just want to thank Gretchen Himsel. We had a nice little donation, $500 from Gretchen. Uh, we're asking people to give as little as $10, as much as 500 like Gretchen. Uh, but we love whenever anyone gives a little bit to the Growing Up in America show, to KPFT. Uh, Pledge Week is uh, uh, so important for us. And uh, so we want to thank you guys for uh, all of that. And uh, Claire, I know that you love Pledge Week, right? Because you love love the idea that people sort of show the love. for good, yeah. Yeah. Because they listen to Growing Up in America and our wonderful guests. (laughs) They start calling in. (laughs) Uh, Daphne Hernandez is on the line with us. Dr. Daphne, and uh, she's over at the UT School of Public Health. And uh, Daphne, how are you doing today, by the way? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Nice to have you back on. And, um, you know, we we talked last time you were on about this whole idea about poverty and its impact on health. And uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about economic trade-offs. Tell tell us what you mean when you talk about economic trade-offs. Yeah, so when we talk about food insecurity and housing instability, which we discussed last week, we never really discuss the term economic trade-off and what families may be doing in order to meet, uh, in order to have food on the table, in order to meet uh, their rent. And and usually what occurs is a trade-off. Households with limited income have to decide which basic need they will prioritize in order to meet the basic need at the moment, right? So they have to decide whether to pay for gas in the car or pay for groceries. Mm-hmm. And these trade-offs can have an effect on food insecurity and can have an effect on, on mental health. Yeah, and then there's also a disparity between female and male economic trade-offs, correct? Correct. Um, you know, without getting <laughs> too academic, um, there is theory behind this and there's theory behind um the feminization of poverty and there are factors in our society that contribute to females undertaking particular basic needs. 
um, more so than men. So females are more likely to take care of, of, of the child care needs, child care responsibilities, um, and the sheer fact of having children place families at risk for transportation hardship. And so when we looked at these economic trade-offs that men and women were doing, we found that men and women are, are more likely to both do trade-offs between deciding whether to purchase food or medicine or to purchase food and utilities. But it was women who were having to decide whether to purchase food or childcare or purchase food or transportation, which means gas in their car or to fix up their car if it was not working well. And so females, in the, at the end of the day, females are making more economic trade-offs and different types of economic trade-offs compared to men, which is then putting them at risk, not only for food insecurity, but long-term poverty. Daphne, when, when we look at Texas, we know that there are probably about a half a million children who live in extreme poverty, right? So this number of these are kids that if it's a family of four, they're making less than $10,000 a year. What what does that mean for those kids and, and for those parents in terms of trade-offs, right? Because we know that parents will sacrifice a lot to make sure that their child does not go hungry. How does that manifest itself with uh, uh, with some of these families and, and what families are giving up? Yeah, so my concern with these trade-offs is, especially among women, they're meeting the immediate need. So, right, so they're meeting the immediate need, which may be food. But long-term, I think the pressure of them having to decide whether to pay for gas in the car or paying for food on the table is causing um, distress among among these females. And so while they are meeting a temporary need, long-term, I think we're, they're putting their mental health at risk. And uh, we know that there is um, family members or when parents experience mental health challenges, it eventually um, trickles down to children and them having um, social emotional difficulties and eventually mental health challenges themselves. Um, you know, if we relate it back to what's currently going on right now with um, where, you know, so-called ending of the pandemic, but yeah. the increase of the recession, we've seen a lot of mental health challenges, um, high trajectory of these mental health challenges. And um, I think they will only continue because families will have to make, continue to make these trade-offs in order to make ends meet, um, especially with the current uh, prices of, of food and, and transportation and and basic needs in general. Yeah. Yeah. I know you did some research in the Houston area um, and especially with the mental health, you saw it was a more direct correlation for females and not males. Is this all based on single parent households or it was just a sporadic group families? How were they kind of surveyed? Yeah. So we surveyed um, seven, you know, 750 food clients in the mm. Houston area and so um, while we looked at marital status, we haven't really looked at these findings by marital status, but they were, I mean, a, a, a good portion of the families were married. So it wasn't always uh, single family households, which is, uh, you know, unfortunately, typically what's portrayed in the media. Um, this is happening in um, dual households as well. So um, it is it is a, a significant problem. Wow. It's, uh, do you see any hope on the horizon for, I mean, you know, during, during the pandemic, we talked a little bit about this, uh, uh, Dr. Hernandez was that, you know, we had this sort of extra influx of money for, uh, the poor and the extremely poor, those living in poverty. Do, do you see any hope anytime soon? I mean, as we talk about budget battles in DC and, uh, it seems like people want, certainly Republicans want to make this even more tough, yeah. uh, for families in poverty. Do you, do you see any light at the end of this tunnel? <laughs> I would Could like to be, be <laughs> I would like to be optimistic and yeah. say yes, but um, you know, I am I am concerned um because anytime there are 
um, you know, restrictions and concerns, you know, about the government shutting down. Um, one of the first things that is, that is, uh, taken off the table is, uh, public assistance programs. Yeah. They're reduced funding or completely, um, um, taken away. So, I mean, we saw this back, uh, uh, several years ago where there was a reduction in funding for SNAP ed program. Um, and that's how they prevented, um, us going over the cliff. Right. And yeah. so, um, I would like to be optimistic, but if history repeats itself, um, you know, we will ha- be, we will be seeing public assistance programs, um, reduced. I, I just think it's interesting that you see so many public public officials that get all um, up in arms about the possibilities of someone poor, you know, maybe using a little bit more money or, you know, not working yet. They still want to, you know, not worry about if someone's cheating on their taxes, you know, millionaires are giving enough money, you know, this sort of thing, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, let's, let's get down on the poor, but let's not worry about the rich. And it's, uh, it drives me crazy sometimes knowing that, uh, with just a little bit of help, those living in poverty can be so much more successful. Uh, and and you know the research just as well as I do, right? It's just uh, it's just confounding when people don't want to pay attention to the research and just decide that uh, uh, the poor are misusing our money, right? Right. Sorry for that little uh, soapbox there, uh, Dr. Hernandez. So, Dr. Daphne Hernandez is at UT uh, Health Houston. And uh, thank you, Daphne, very much for the work that you're doing. Uh, and thanks for being on the Growing Up in America program. Thank you again. All right. Uh, you're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT Pacifica Radio. Pledge Week, and we want to thank Amelia, Amelia O, right? And uh, she gave a really nice donation. So, Amelia, thank you very much for donating to Growing Up in America to KPFT. And uh, is is Amelia one of your buddies, uh, Claire? Uh, she is not, but now we are. Now so you're Amelia, buddies. Now we now are buddies. buddies. Thank you for donating. Yeah, thank you, Amelia, very much. I know. I have another buddy on the line, though. Christine Thomas from our Seize Me team, very own Children at Risk, is with us to help us with the number of the day. Christine, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Perfect. We did not have any guesses for 30. We are pathetic this week. Yeah, I can't <laughs> figure out what 30 is. I know. I feel like 30% is too low. So if it's, but it's high enough to not be something that I yeah. would like to be lower. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know where to what pin is that it? number. What is it, Christine? What is the, the 30? Yeah. So kind of going off of, um, you know, the last segment, it actually um, transitions really well when we're thinking about social determinants of health, especially around uh, families living in poverty. 30 is the subsidized child care seats per 100 children of working parents living above 200% of the federal poverty level. And, and to break that down, I mean, having done this press, now I know where you're going, right? And I did this press <laughs> conference last week, right? So we're talking about uh, across the state of Texas, for every 100 kids, there are only 30 high quality seats or there are only 30 seats and high quality. I think it's, is the number 12, uh, Christine? I mean, it's, it's significantly lower if you're looking at high quality seats. Yeah. So, um, you know, we are subsidized seats where we're not including any pre-K or Head Start programs. So um, it's just subsidized seats available in the state of Texas. You're right. And I think, you know, for a parent, this is the thing, you know, if you're a parent and you're growing up, you're, you're working and you have kids, uh, low income family, you, and you want these kids to go to high quality day, daycare while you work, while you contribute to the economy, while you're doing the right thing, uh, only 12 high quality seats for every hundred kids. That's, that's, insane. that's rough. Yeah. And even thinking yeah. of the poverty line, the working parents make up less than 200% of the federal, or it's on less than 200% of the federal poverty level. So if you're not able to get child care, you're not able to work. So it's just reiterating the systems. Yeah. 
Right, right. And we know that, again, COVID kind of just really messed things up. Um, you know, it really affected disproportionately women um, in the workforce. So a lot of women had to drop out of the workforce. Um, and, you know, a lot of these child care, care centers and programs closed. So, um, you know, Texas Workforce did step in. A lot of COVID relief funds stopped this child care crisis from getting worse. Capacity increased in 2022. Um, we're seeing increased levels, but as people are entering back into the workforce, you know, they are at a lower income level. So it, we need to start talking about the affordability of high quality child care. So we know that a lot of, you know, bringing in the research again, Dr. Bob, mm-hmm. that early childhood interventions like high quality child care leads to higher high school graduation rates right. and later increased earnings. So Expanding subsidy seats really leads to economic benefits within the community and can really help to bring families out of poverty. You're getting at what my next question, and I thought this was going to be a left field question because I know you love it when I come from left field and I ask you these <laughs> odd questions. But if if I'm a parent and and I am just struggling, and so I just have to put my child you know, wherever. And so there's a nice lady who keeps a nice clean house down the street and she's offered to, she is offered to take care of a number of the local kids. Right. But you and I would go in there. We we would not say this is high quality, but it's safe and it's something right. So that I can work. What's the difference between that Christine and going to the uh, four star Texas rising star, what you and I would go and say, Hey, this is super high quality. What is the difference going to be in the outcome for that child down the road? Yeah. So Texas rising star is a quality rating system for childcare programs and participating in Texas workforce commission um, childcare system. So, These certifications are, you know, you're required to have in-home visits. There's a lot of evaluation criteria. Um, You know, they're rated on a tiered system. So two, three, and four, um, you know, each of those are progressively higher. So the programs achieve certifications that exceed, you know, this minimum child care licensee standard. There's staff qualifications and training, teacher-child interaction, indoor-outdoor learning environment qualifications. There's a lot to go into it. Um, You know, I'm still learning about it, but it's, you know, they really contribute to the development of children that they serve daily. So those kids are going to be better off going to a four-star, obviously, but this gets back to much more likely to graduate high school, much more likely to probably go to college, do better academically, K through 12. And so for a parent, parents should be actively looking for two, three, four stars. Uh, and this is part of the whole idea of these deserts, right? You, we want to make sure that in every community across Texas, you have access to some of these high quality seats and it's just not happening, but we need the pressure from parents, right? To happen. So anyway, Christine Thomas, she is, uh, the senior associate director at the center for social measurement evaluation at children at risk. Thank you, Christine, for all the work you do. And thanks for being on the growing up in America program. Thank you. Bye. 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 You're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT Pacifica Radio. All right. Hey, feel free to give us a call at uh, 713-526-5738. Press 1 if you want to give us a donation here on Pledge Week. And uh, we were so excited that Amelia gave us a little bit of money. And, uh, and Gretchen. Gretchen gave us a little bit of money. We have people calling in, and uh, we're excited. So I just saw the booth. I guess I was saying Amelia, and it's really Amelia. Is that right? Yeah, so everyone's excited yeah. that I said Amelia. <laughs> Amelia, we apologize. Yeah, I'm uh, sorry, best friend. Yeah, yeah, so we should have uh, we should have caught that. 713-526-5738, giving to Growing Up in America and Pacifica Radio. Up next on the program, uh, Raul Zavaleta is the health services coordinator over over the Harris County Department of Education. And we want to talk a little bit about uh, engagement in education. Raul, welcome to Growing Up in America. Thank you so much for having me. Good afternoon to everyone. Yeah, thanks for being on the program today. Uh, 
how do we prepare families for engagement in education? Because one of the things that we know here in Texas is that, you know, uh, 65% of our kids come from low-income households. Uh, that means low levels of educational attainment by many folks. You know, I came from uh, parents like that, didn't finish high school, and many of many other kids are like that here in Texas. And parents sometimes don't know how to be uh, engaged education-wise? Well, what's, the, what's the answer to that, Raul? Well, there are many answers, but for us, it's recognizing that our parents are the first and most important teachers, mm-hmm. recognizing the individuality and uniqueness of families, and just letting the culture of learning be driven by families. Uh, we create a positive attitude towards education and encourage high level of family involvement. So we have literacy nights, parent meetings, you know, our policy council, and then we have our parent-teacher conferences periodically to engage parents, inform them on their child's progress, and invite them to events that are on, to our, that are on-site at our campuses. Because, again, like you said, it's an investment, mm-hmm. and we want everyone to be prepared and ready uh, when they transition from our program to uh, public education. Yeah, as a teacher, I remember it was just zoned in that a parent's a partner and you want the initial outreach or the most of the outreach to be positive and make sure that you're um, not only investing in their child, but asking them how you can, how their child learns and how you can make that investment. But for families that might not be able to show up all the time to those conferences or events, how can they be a partner at home and a collaborator in their child's education? Yeah, for sure. So, Checking in with, with teachers or the teaching staff, you know, we as a program send take-home calendars uh, with our students, and they have a number of activities throughout the month. Uh, they can send pictures. Uh, you know, we also have apps like Class Dojo where we can communicate with our, with our parents, uh, a quick email. And then one of the positive things that came out of the pandemic is Zoom. Um, in teams where we can have these virtual collaborations and partnerships with with parents who may not be able to to come on site because they work during the day. How often do you think parents should be checking in with their child's teachers? As often as as needed, right? Um, Sometimes parents worry that they're going to hover or be helicopter parents, but Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, as a parent, you should want to know what your child is doing and learning in the classroom and how you can strengthen that at home. Um, or if you have any questions or concerns, then you should be checking in as often as you want. I don't think there's a, a limit, a time frame or a parameter for that. Yeah. It's interesting, right? When that question comes up, I think more often than not, parents are not checking in as often as they should, right? So if there's a, I mean, we always know that there are a few helicopter parents out there, right? And we know which schools are going to, but by and large, at most of our schools, parents could be more engaged. They're afraid sometimes to be engaged. And I often often find this, Raul, right? When I visit uh, some of these schools is that uh, Latino, uh, Latina moms, uh, are engaged in very different ways than, say, white moms would be engaged. Uh, nine, neither one is better or worse, but, uh, but you want to encourage that engagement as much as possible. Yeah, I know for Latina moms, just thinking of my own, it was a language barrier. Like, she yeah. would come out to events, but she didn't always understand if the program was in English. So I think one of the ways that we can improve that is by having bilingual services or someone that speaks the language and is able to communicate um, with that segment of the population. Mm-hmm. There's also talking I mean, points. The, if anyone's listening, yeah, I mean, that's an educator. Is, yeah, the purpose is always to create a healthy foundation for, for partnership with the parents. You know, the parents really are partners. And so if you yeah. want to strengthen your collaboration, then you have to include them in any decision-making. You have to communicate any concerns promptly and find solutions that work for them so you meet them where they are. And yeah. you give them the free agency to to make the decision for their families. Talk a little bit about the differences in the way parents get engaged, you know, some of the different cultures, Raul. You know, I know that uh, for a white mom or dad, the, the idea is showing up at PTA meetings, PTO meetings, uh, coming to the parent-teacher conference. For a Latina mom, it's you know, wanting to eat breakfast at the school or lunch at the school with their kids. Talk a little bit about some of those differences. Um, you know, with, with 
Latino or Hispanic parents, it's very uh, inclusive of the grandparents and the auntie and the uncle. So if as a mom or dad, you're unable to make a meeting, you're going to send another loved one or another family member to support um, because family includes not just your mom and dad. It includes the grandma and grandpa, your cousin, that family friend. Right. Yeah. So it's, I think that's interesting, right? And, and, um, uh, and, and neither, not one is not better than the other, right? I think that's the, that's the important thing. Is it important, Raul? I know that you're focused on early education. Uh, is it important? I would guess that a parent in early education, the more engaged they are early wise, that means that shows how much they'll be engaged later on as well. I think so, because if you start, if you build a habit early on, you're going to stick to it, right? It's going to be sustainable in the long term. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And um, you were mentioning earlier, you were giving the example, like if you have a family and uh, they don't they don't have the ability to take them to that four or five star Texas Rising. Yeah. You know, another option is the Head Start program, and we're actively recruiting eligible students now So. If, any of the listeners are interested, you know, give us a give us a call at 832-548-9288, and we'd be happy to provide more information or help you apply to our program so that you're not feeling like you're stuck between bad options. And is that just hcde.org, Raul, to, to, if they want to go online? It's hcde-texas.org, or you can just Google HCDE Head Start, and it'll pop up. Very good. Raul Zavaleta is at the Harris County Department of Education doing some great work uh, with kids and parents. Raul, thank you so much for being on the Growing Up in America program, Pacifica Radio. Thank you so much. Thanks, Raul. Thank you for having me. All righty. You're listening to Growing Up in America on Pacifica Radio. I need a sign to let me know you're here. All of these lines are being crossed over. All right, Claire, we're coming into the, the uh, what do you call it, the, the home stretch, right? Yes. So, very good. Claire, I know we're, it's Pledge Week, and um, we we want supporters. And we've had you know a couple of good supporters already, a couple of phone calls. But if you want to feel the need to support Growing Up in America, KPFT, uh, your community radio station, 713-526-5738. And it's not just about calling. You could also get all these concert no, tickets. No, there's uh, a May fun drive that there's an extensive list. If I read, it'd be three hours. But there's so many different levels of pledging for tickets and opportunities. I'm looking at a bus tour opportunity. So check that out on the website. Yeah, a lot of good stuff. So thank you. Uh, and we want to thank everyone who's been giving so far. 713526 Five seven three eight. Amelia, Gretchen, and everyone else who's been given. So Becky, Becky is a big giver as well. Seven one three five two six five seven three eight. Press one for donations. Hey, up on next we have uh, Dr. Ricky Flores, who's one of the clinical directors at Texas Children's Cancer and Hematology Center. He's up in the Woodlands. Dr. Ricky, how are you doing today, man? Very good. Thank you for the invitation. How very, are you doing? Very, very good. Hey. uh, Dr. Flores, I wanted to ask you, uh, I know that you have a powerful story yourself, but when we look at the growing population in Texas, and I I just did a speech about this the other day, is that we have the youngest youngest families in the nation are here in Texas, uh, and we have a fast-growing population, and that population is Latino, right? 54% today in school of our children are Latino, and that portion is growing yet it's also a low-income population. And what are some of the challenges that come with uh, Latinos getting health care? What are some of the challenges when there aren't enough Latinos to provide that health care for this uh, growing part of our population? No, I completely agree. I think that's one of, actually one of the main reasons I decided to train and stay here in the uh, in Texas, in the, particularly in the Houston area and now in the Woodlands, because of the growing uh, Latino community. And um, and many of the challenges that we see, for example, in my patient population with uh, families with cancer and so on, the main problem is for to uh, that they need help to cover the daily expenses. You can imagine like being at the hospital every one, every two weeks and so on, and having to pay something as simple as parking, for example. 
uh, in the hospital, most of the uh, parkings are independent contractors. So you have to pay anywhere between 12 to $20 a, a day. Mm. So you can imagine just like uh, uh, kind of like a, as a family, as all minorities and so on, uh, you can add that cost to everything else like food, transportation, gas and so on. So those are one of the, the uh, main uh, kind of like needs that are often overlooked. And this is only one minor aspect of it. And in, in top of that, then you add all of the medical expenses, uh, the, uh, also the uh, language barrier, because of, like you also mentioned, many of the providers do not speak Spanish, at least uh, as a yeah. first language. And that's another barrier because then you, you can sit down or the providers, can, the physicians can sit down with them, spend an hour or with a translator and so on. But at the end of the day, probably they, they were able to understand maybe like 50% of that. So it's harder for them to even to retain the uh, important medical information. So that, those one of the, are one of the barriers that are increasing, but that's why I think we need more, more medical staff, not only doctors, but nurses, social mm. workers, uh, child life, and uh, people supporting in the hospital who are uh, Spanish-speaking in, in, the, in the case of the, uh, of the Latino community. Yeah. And, and not, not only from, from a language perspective, but also from a cultural perspective. Yeah. I've had uh, some of my colleagues who speak Spanish, uh, because they train in it and they, you know, they work hard on it. But then when it comes to the culture, something as simple as a single word or, or like you were, uh, um, discussing earlier, um, kind of like the, the, what expectations should they have and so on. Or what is, for example, what is the importance of the uh, grandmother of the cousin for the Hispanic community and so on that may be different from the North American and other type of uh, cultural, uh, backgrounds. Yeah. You forget. Um, you hear barriers, and you can imagine just a translation barrier, but thinking of all the food, housing, transportation, and like you said, the culture, and that's just on when you're vulnerable and already might have cancer or a family member going through something hard. Can you shine light on what the struggles might look like on the opposite end, so those in minority groups trying to break through and go to the medical field and some of those roadblocks you might have overcome? Yeah, from that perspective, one of the things is, of course, uh, education. Uh, being able to have uh, access to adequate and good education from, from elementary school, junior high, high school, and so on. And then also making it to college. And, and uh, what we've seen, actually, in minorities, we have different groups who provide help and support for promising students to go into college, right? And then they get the support to be able to, to finish their degree and so on. But interestingly, after you're done with a degree, if you don't have uh, adequate uh, connections from other professionals, then you may not be able to get uh, access to either uh, different experiences or internships or access to different type of jobs that, uh, that other students may be able to get just because they have a different background. They have the contacts and the connection. And that's something, some, something that... Uh, gets overlooked, but it's very interesting when you think about it, right? If you don't have the connections or your parents were not educated and so on, then uh, you may be a promising student that just finished your, let's say, biology degree and so on, but because you don't have the mentorship or mentoring from other people who have done it before before you, then that, that's kind of like a huge barrier in your academic uh, development. Dr. Flores, I know that... Uh uh, you also, as a, a young Latino, you over you overcame a number of things, right? To be to to decide to become a physician, and I, I wanted to hear from you. You know, what is your story a little bit? And I know we don't have a lot of time because probably you and I could go on and on with our stories. But uh, how did you decide to become a physician, and and what happened to make that happen? Well, I always loved uh, children, so I knew that and science. So I knew that I wanted to do something with kids. So I decided to become a, a doctor so I would be able to become a pediatrician. While I was uh, studying in Puerto Rico at med school, my mother-in-law died of cancer. And that's when I decided to go into the uh, cancer field once I finished the uh, pediatric uh, training. So I did everything in my uh, medical school and pediatric training in Puerto Rico. Uh, and then I came here. I decided to come here because we definitely have the largest cancer center for kids and hematology, blood disorders in the nation and probably in the world. So we have the best people here, uh, which is kind of like a, a, a privilege. And um, so 
So what I did to overcome some of, of those barriers that was like 15 years ago already. So it's interesting because I knew that just like if you compare my my credentials side by side by so, with someone or other students who train here in the United States, uh, I was going to be at a disadvantage. And that's kind of like a reality. That's the way it is, just because they don't know the, the system in Puerto Rico. But we were so well trained there. And I, what I did is I, I kind of like overdid it. So I will not sleep. I will study harder than anyone. So when, when it came to some standardized uh, tests that we take, so I will uh, do great in those. And even though the, uh, the different medical institutions do not usually look at those, I knew that by having a great grade in there compared yeah. to, the, uh, to the United States students, then I would add it to my personal statement. So I will make people look at it and they will make others look at it. And I force them to, to, to look at my, uh, my uh, application in a different light. So that's something that I did, but you can imagine, like, it is not fair that someone like me has to go through so much or do something so different, you know, in order to stand out. But I, uh, over the past 10 years and so on, I've seen, I ha- I've had the privilege also of having, like, a, uh, different minority grants from the yeah. National Institute of Health and different opportunities just as a minority. And, um, and, but, but, but again, our minority groups are still underrepresented in the, the medical field and many other fields. Yeah. So uh, at least that's my story. And yeah, that's no, that's I, good. I, I did it. Dr. Flores, and, and you're, from, uh, you're from Puerto Rico? Yes. Boricua. Boricua. Oh, there you go. I, Dr. Flores, you don't know this, but I grew up in Aguadilla. So, uh, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So, right down the road, right? So, um, anyway, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Flores. And we want to ask you sort of uh, one or two fun questions before we finish up for the day. And I'll start with what was your favorite food growing up as a kid, Ricky? Wow, as a kid, you know, it was it's interesting. Uh, it, definitely white rice and beans because that's kind of like the base that we <laughs> use for all, all, all food. And then anything on top of that, anything that my grandmother would cook. She's still alive. She's a great cook. And, and anything that she would cook, it would have like a great seasoning. So uh, uh, white rice, beans, and grandma's uh, choice of meat. And the last question is, what actor would play you in a movie of your life? Oh, wow. You know, like, I, very, I, I, I look alike Carlos Pons, and I just did an event with him in, in, uh, in Miami uh, uh, at a children's hospital there for kids with cancer, and we have a great relation now. Who did you say? Like my brother. Who did you say, Carlos Ricky? Ponce. Carlos Ponce. Carlos Ponce. Yeah, he, yeah. But it's interesting. He's older than me, so I uh, I don't know if he will be able to. <laughs> yeah, do you he might get someone, cut from the movie. <laughs> yeah, some, someone younger. So, Dr. Ricky Flores is with Texas Children's. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Dr. Flores, and uh, thank you for being on the Growing Up in America program. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. All right, take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT. Uh, Sandy, are you going to say a few words today? Is that uh, Sandy? Sandy's a station manager. <laughs> Take yeah. it over. In- interim. <laughs> yeah. In- in- always, interim. Always use interim. Interim. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate what you guys bring to the airwaves. I hope everybody else does too. This program has value beyond measure. There is no way to express the issues that are addressed here. There is no way to really take this to any other place but KPFT. Mm. This is it. And, folks, we're non-commercial. We rely on your support. We're in FunDrive. And now we're relying on you. 713-526-5738, option one, or kpft.org, and support, support this endeavor, which supports things like growing up in America. Yeah. So valuable. And I want to thank everybody here that's in the studio today, your whole crew. They're faithfully coming in every week. Yeah. Answering the phones, helping uh, – got a board op here yeah you bet becky and uh, rebecca we got it going on so yeah, we really do and help us keep going on 713-526-5738 thanks for all you do thank, thank you, you sandy so much. thank you very much uh feel free to donate thank you for being part of growing up in america and uh, we'll see you next time here on kpft because we do this each and every day for, for children, children.
with the dream, my cardigan. Welcome to the land of fame, access. Am I gonna fit in? Jumped in the cab, here I am for the first time.